0: One of my favorite games when I was a kid was hide and seek. And I loved in those days to stick my head and shoulders under a bed. And with most of the rest of me sticking out from under the bed, I thought I was invisible. I thought I couldn't be seen because I couldn't see out from under the bed. And my parents wanted me to have fun. So they would walk around and say things like, where's John? We can't find John. And I would just giggle loudly in this kind of delight at how well hidden I was and not understanding that I could hear them so they could probably hear me also. I was thinking I was invisible, thinking I was inaudible, and there I was. And it was a lot of fun. Now you might say, well, why are you telling us that? Well, is there an adult version of the person sticking his head and shoulders under something with a lot of the rest of him sticking out And he's not aware of it and probably should be. Think about the person who can never admit a mistake. The person who never asks for help. The person who never has anything to learn from anyone. What do you think that adult is hiding from? So think about the people around that person. Is it working? Do you think all the rest of him is invisible to them? Do you think that people look at that person and think, Wow, that's the first fully formed, complete person with no further need for growth who ever existed. Or do you imagine that they think, wow, he's pretty insecure, or he's hard to work with, or he's set in his ways, he's a little rigid. In other words, don't you think they see his legs sticking out? In other words, we don't really have that much upside in pushing out this persona of never making mistakes. It gets in the way of us growing, but it doesn't really achieve the aura of perfection we would like to imagine. And the very person who's doing it, surely he has seen other humans trying and hasn't been fooled. So why would he imagine that it would work in his case? I'm going to take you down another thought thread, and then I'll reconnect all these dots near the end. One of my favorite times in sports history was the decade of the 1980s when the Lakers of Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and James Worthy and all those others just traded championships or nearly seemed to against the Boston Celtics of Larry Bird and Robert Parrish and Danny Ainge and Dennis Johnson, Kevin McHale. Those were magical years when you felt that you really knew those players and they had such strong personalities Not just the superstars, but the whole teams. And then these other characters would come in and out of the drama every so often, like the Houston Rockets and the Philadelphia 76ers. They'd come on and off that stage, but the main characters were the Celtics and the Lakers. Pat Riley coached the Lakers through most of that decade. After the Lakers won the championship in 1987, Riley wrote a book called Showtime, Inside the Lakers Breakthrough Season. There are a lot of great themes that come through in Riley's book. One is just the commitment that it takes to be excellent. I've heard other great athletes say things like, if I just let up 1% in my intensity, I wouldn't even be in the top 10 of my sport. And I've even heard one say, I wouldn't even be in the top 100 anymore. In his book, Riley goes back to a previous season right after the Lakers had won the 1984-85 season championship. Here's what he wrote. Anytime you win a championship, there's a ring ceremony in front of your home crowd early the next season. The celebration for our 1984-85 title was held before a game against the Cleveland Cavaliers on November 4, 1985, the fifth game of the new season. We had swept the first four. One at a time, each fellow got to walk in front of the sold-out crowd and accept his ring at the microphone. The fans whistled and clapped in admiration. Cleveland, a team struggling at the bottom of its division, then proceeded to kick our championship ass. This was the second time I had seen the same thing happen. Golden State whipped us in November of nineteen eighty-two, right after we accepted our championship rings for eighty-one eighty-two. That's the end of the quote. And Riley's point, of course, is that excellence is a fragile thing. Loss of excellence can take a lot of forms. In basketball, one is simple physical intensity, but another is loss of commitment to improve, to grow, to learn, to escape that pressure we all feel to be a finished product. Riley talks in the book about a pivotal point in that previous season when the Lakers had beaten the Celtics to win the championship of 1985. The final series had started off terribly. On Memorial Day of 1985, the Celtics had beaten those Lakers so badly at home in Boston that the press called it the Memorial Day Massacre. Back in 1985, nine out of 10 sports writers would probably agree that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of the Lakers was the greatest player in history so everyone agreed after that game that his best days were behind him the legend was slowly fading with age here's what riley wrote about jabbar's response the very next day quote we met for a game reviewing session the next morning i walked into the room and found kareem abdul jabbar sitting up front he got right where he could take his criticism full in the face i let fly I stopped the tape at every bad spot, backed it up, and played it over again. James Worthy sat in the back row. He couldn't believe how the team captain, the greatest basketball player of all time, absorbed every harsh word and looked straight back at me and said, You're right. Riley then dished out a little more feedback to the other players and then wrote, Finally, I came back to the captain. And I asked him simply and directly, Kareem, what do you want to do? Kareem said, let's just go to work. That's the end of that passage. So look at the example that Jabbar was setting. He wasn't sticking his head under a bed and hoping the rest of him was invisible. His clear signal was, I'm going to be the number one learner here today, even if it's embarrassing. Riley then writes about the intensity of the next two and a half days of practice, how the Laker players were pushing themselves much harder than he could. Now what Jabbar did next is even better, but to understand this next story, you have to know the sacred status of the team bus that the Lakers rode to the games away from home. No one outside the players and coaches, no wives, no best friends, no mentors, no former coaches, ever allowed on the team bus. It was a sacred spot before the game for just the team and the coaches. Here's what Riley writes. Thursday, May 30th, we boarded the team bus for game two. Kareem came up to the steps of the bus and asked me if his dad could ride along. I was surprised. We had made a big point that the bus would be 12 players and three coaches, no one else. But I could see a need in his eyes. He was about to face one of the biggest tests of his career. It was important to be with his father. I said, Fine. Here were these two men sitting together, one big and the other a giant. I knew that they had had their share of father and son difficulty in earlier years, but that day they were feeling the importance of their mutual bond. They inspired me to throw away my prepared speech. That's the end of the quote. Now, that game. Jabbar played one of the greatest games of his career and embarrassed the critics who had said his career was fading. And the Lakers went on to famously win that 1985 series. Now think for a minute about that. Think about being Jabbar. Put yourself in his place. Think about playing a terrible game that first day in Boston in front of a hostile crowd, a famously hostile crowd. The critics were hyperactive. What would you do? Would you have been tempted to hide in your superstar mantle and say something like, you were misunderstood, or you were tired of the game, or the ref's calls were bad? Or would you instead sit in the front row at the team video review and say, let's get very clear on where I can improve? And would you have tried to go it alone? Or would you give yourself permission instead to reach out to an emotional lifeline and say, hey, if you're still there, I could use you to bring your own dad on the team bus. Now I've been talking so far as if it's pretty easy to be that guy, the guy who's happy to make his mistakes visible, the guy who's happy to ask for help. But we've seen plenty of environments where there's a lot more downside to doing that than upside. Let's take attorneys, for example. By profession, these guys are knowledge workers. For whom expertise is the stock in trade. Admitting a mistake or asking for help is one of the worst things you can do for your career unless you're very careful about choosing the right location for that kind of transparency. And we've all seen environments, even outside of law practice, where showing that kind of vulnerability can sometimes just result in other people piling on. Yeah, they say, he made that mistake, and here are some more that he made. So how do we as leaders create the sort of team environment that Pat Riley created during that time for the Lakers? Well, maybe by modeling these behaviors ourselves, are we quick enough to introspect and honest enough to come clean in our group? Do we have enough confidence in our mastery of real leadership habits not to be worried about winning every expert contest? How do we get crystal clear on what is important in a leadership role so that we can be comfortable surrendering the things that are not? How do we create an atmosphere of high integrity where none of us have our heads and shoulders under the bed, where we all see each other clearly and are fine with that, using that level of transparency to solve problems, learn fast, and really outpace our competitors?